Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your hosts, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you? Doing well, Ed. Hope you are. I am just recovering from Thanksgiving and turkey coma. It's always a good thing to have. Yeah, so uh, we jumped right back into it today with a big case in the uh, Supreme Court. Interesting oral arguments today. And and quite lengthy, as I understand it. Yeah, they lasted about two hours. Now, in our Supreme Court preview, this was one of the cases that you had uh, had previewed, Dobbs. Do you want to give kind of a thumbnail sketch of what's at stake in this case? Yes, as best uh, memory serves, um, the state of Mississippi passed a statute that um, outlawed all abortions uh, performed on a fetus who uh, was is older than 15 weeks, I think is a fair way to say it. They um, sort of drew a bright line at 15 weeks. I'm not real sure that there was really any evidence as to why 15 weeks it's it's and that's part of what you're going to talk about with this case it's it's a fetus is not viable at least at this point from a a medical standpoint at 15 weeks and the uh, case law is is all um it seems to be based uh at least in theory on, on when a fetus becomes viable uh, what the state's interests are at that point versus what they are prior to viability. But this statute just draws a bright line and says that's it. One of the criticisms uh, that uh, our listeners will recall that we talked about in our Supreme Court preview had to do with the fact that uh, there is an argument by um, the, uh, and I don't know whether, I don't remember whether they're petitioners or respondents, but the, the, the folks opposing the law um, uh, that many uh, people, women, particularly younger women, would not even perhaps know they were pregnant at, at 15 weeks. Uh, and so by the time they find out, it, it may be past the point in which they are allowed to abort uh, the child in the state of Mississippi. Yeah, that's a good summary. And that did come up today. So there were three uh, three attorneys who were arguing, there were the petitioners who represent the state of Mississippi, and then the respondents, but then also the Solicitor General of the United States, who has just recently been confirmed by the Senate, also got to make an argument. Uh, you know, there were several things that kind of jumped out at me today. First, there was a great deal of discussion about the viability line as it started being referred to throughout the argument. Mm-hmm. And I guess historically, uh, Roe versus Wade set up this trimester framework, and then Casey, which was a subsequent case by the Supreme Court, talked about creating this viability line at which a child could survive away from the mother. And so they they really, all the justices really seemed to struggle with this idea of viability and whether that was really an appropriate standard. And it was kind of interesting the way they, they struggled with it, but but the other piece which, you know, came up repeatedly during the oral arguments was the role of stare decisis, you know, giving a certain amount of credence to precedent and what we do and, and what we, the court, does is, is how they can reverse cases that have been clearly decided incorrectly, if that's what they believe happened. And, of course, the, the liberal wing was quite clear that this isn't one of those cases. 
the two most vociferous justices were Breyer and Sotomayor. Sotomayor referred to the stench in public perception this would cause. And at one time, Breyer... Stench. Stench. That she was, actually said that word. That was the word that she used. Oh, my gosh. And, and at one time, Breyer just became almost hostile. This was... Uh, Actually, uh, there was a point late in the in the arguments, you know, maybe over halfway through. Sotomayor was making kind of an interesting. She was trying to phrase her question, but she was stating her belief about the Constitution and how it stacks up in federal state relations, etc. It was kind of interesting, and I wondered where she was going with it. And then Breyer broke in and uh, started citing Casey and some other cases, including Brown versus Board of Education and West Coast Hotel. And he really got hostile and started preaching about it. And then from the more conservative justices. Did he get hostile with her or with counsel or both or uh, other justices? Well, it was with the other justices, frankly, um, or just the whole concept that he was having to decide this case. At the time, that was during the respondent's argument. Uh, the attorney who's from the Center for Reproductive Rights was arguing at the time, so he was not hostile with her, but he was, uh, no, let me take that back. It was the Solicitor General uh, Prelonger or Prelonger who's just mm-hmm. been uh, appointed. Now, so he was not hostile with her. As I understand or recall the news, the Solicitor General of the United States, who is, I think, the number three person in the U.S. Department of Justice, at least in terms of the hierarchy, that job entails representing the interests of the United States government before the Supreme Court, primarily. The Office of Solicitor General of the United States was invited by the court to, I guess, I don't know that it's fair to say intervene, but to argue uh, on the matter? That's correct. And, and as I understand process, the Solicitor General does not have to intervene. Right. Um, they are a, a party, uh, almost a party, or they're certainly put in that position to give guidance to the court. Yeah, they're sort of treated like one, even though they're not technically a party. That's so they, they uh, the, the attorney, uh, the solicitor general's office briefed the case and, and made it uh, an argument before the court, just like the respondent and the petitioner. And, and I would say that's not unusual. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it means anything in this case, but it happens in a number of cases before the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, I think you know, there's the, a presumption. Do they call it a presumption that the United States as a an entity has an interest um, in certain cases by virtue of its, I guess, almost protective interest in the United States Constitution and therefore can participate even though not a party? Yeah, I think that's correct. I think any case that is dealing with constitutional rights, they probably are involved in, uh, although I think it happens in other cases also, mm-hmm. in which uh, for maybe the administrative state or other reasons why the federal government is involved in something. But on the issue of stare decisis, it was, it was also interesting to hear what I'd call the more conservative justices talk about that issue because, um, you know, they repeatedly came back to the fact, well, what if uh, a case was decided incorrectly? Uh, when do we when do we get to reverse it? And I guess there was, there was, of course, discussion from the Supreme Court previously in the Casey 
decision about watershed cases, as they're referred to, that are like super strong cases that you just can't reverse. So one of the justices today made the argument, and I believe it was Alito, although I'm not sure because no one called his name after he talked, but uh, he said, you know, suppose Plessy, which goes back to 1896, it was a U.S. Supreme Court case that said separate but equal is okay. Mm -hmm. And he said, and everybody agrees Plessy was wrong, and it was the basis of Jim Crow in the South. He says, suppose Plessy was re-argued in 1897. Would it not be sufficient to say that it was egregiously wrong on the day it was handed down? Because the respondents were trying to make this argument that things have to change before the court can say that that decision was wrong. And his position was, okay, we decided in 1896. What if it came back in 1897? Nothing would have changed, but we still would have known it was wrong from the beginning. Couldn't we do something about that? It seems apparent in looking at uh, your notes, which you were kind enough to share with me uh, from this morning's argument, that there is a line of cases, I suppose, uh, with regard to uh, overturning precedent uh, in the federal court system and and in what it actually requires. So I don't know that other than stare decisis itself, there's any requirement that there be some sort of material change or uh, substantial change or, or whatever the term of art is. Um, and I, I found that to be a, an interesting argument. In other words, if everyone agrees it was wrong, why isn't that enough? I mean, to right a wrong, um, kind of hard to, uh, to argue with that, but I suppose just the interest of stare decisis, which is, you know, we, we want law to be settled, uh, is strong enough in the minds of some scholars and jur- jurists to uh, require there to be something more. You know, as a practical matter, the court makes a decision that they want to, and they're not really bound by anything but themselves. Right. Um, and, and, and these arguments get made by which side wants to see a change. Right. And and oftentimes, at least my theory has always been that the the court, and by that I mean the majority, arrives at a decision and then reasons backwards from that decision as to how they arrived at that decision, which is in some ways, I hate to use the word hypocritical because it's it's not necessarily so, but sometimes courts go to lengths to cover almost cover up why they, they did something or didn't do something. And it seems to me it would, they would be better served or the public would be better served by just saying, you know, for whatever reason or reasons politically or morally or whatever, we disagree with, with, with this. And therefore we're, we're ruling in, in this fashion. Well, and that was kind of Gorsuch's point at one, at one stage of the, the argument today, because he named a lot of cases from Brown uh, versus Board of Education, Miranda, he was naming criminal cases and said, you know, lots of cases where this court has overruled precedent. And if we uh, think precedent was wrong and we think there's no role in the Constitution for the federal government to be involved, why would we just not return to a stance of neutrality on this and leave it back to the states? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I'm wondering if, if you can... Take us and take the listeners and me through 
row with its trimester approach, which my memory is was not even argued or discussed at any level prior to um, Harry Blackman writing that opinion, and the Casey approach. And Casey was late 80s, early 90s, as I remember. And I, I also think the Casey was just a plurality. Uh, there was no common five votes with regard to any part of Casey and, and whether, and, and the difference between the Roe and the Casey reasoning. The original Roe decision, as you say, was, um, you know, the, there's stories about Justice Blackman who wrote the decision and he was a former attorney for the Mayo Clinic, I believe. That's right. And he uh, struggled with it and, and spent lots of time in private consulting medical texts. And ultimately, he developed this trimester framework in which he said that the state, whether it's states or the federal government, whatever, has an interest. And as we've said before, by having an interest, that means the ability to regulate, that the state had an interest in being able to regulate the practice of abortion in the first trimester. And then it was a declining interest in the second and third trimester. That was the law of the land from 1973 until Casey was decided many years later. And my understanding is that in Casey, and perhaps I said it wrong, there was a majority in Casey for the purpose of, my my memory is, of of, um, overturning the trimester approach in favor of this viability uh, line which uh, we we talked about a few minutes ago. I'm not sure that it's fair to say that the trimester, even though I don't don't recall that Justice Blackman actually tied the trimester to viability, I think there is at least some um, notion of viability with regard to the trimester approach. And, of course, the trimester approach does not account for changes in medical technology, which the viability standard from Casey would. Um, was there? Was there? I, I think there was. I, I should say, talk about whether viability ought to be the standard. Is that correct? That's right. That was a big part of the discussion today, and I got the sense that that they were all kind of wrestling with that concept, and that several of them might be more inclined to several of the conservatives might be more inclined to some other standard. But it seems that the way this case has been set up is that they may not have an option on that. Yeah, um, because the case, I assume, was or the law was was uh, fashioned uh, with regard to this, at least in part based upon some consideration of viability. Although, again, 15, I mean, I, I think the viability standard at this point or the viability line, if you will, for human children uh uh, is 24 weeks. Does that sound right? Something like that. There was discussion about that, and it seems to be 24 weeks. Although I will say that at one point there seemed to be an argument that viability was not based on what I thought the question of viability was, which is the child surviving outside the mother's womb, um, but whether or not medical technology could also assist in that. And it wasn't really clear at all to me what the argument was at that point. Yeah. Uh, now, early on in this, uh, early on today, uh, one of the first to ask a question was the Chief Justice, who 
talked about the fact that in the petition for writ of certiorari, the way they got this case before the court, that they granted the court granted cert on the question of whether all pre-viability standards were invalid. But he then pointed out that, that Mississippi had kind of changed the argument in the brief to cover specifically whether Roe and Casey should be overruled. And I thought the attorney from Mississippi did a pretty good job, which is that basically, hey, when we get a chance to go before the Supreme Court, we're going to put everything we have into the brief. Right. Because you never know what what they want to hang their hat on, if anything. And my memory, too, with regard to Casey is that there was uh, or there were three or four justices who expressed in opinions um, that Roe ought to be overturned in some fashion. And I don't know if there was an agreement among those as to what fashion it should be overturned. But I, I think that was Clarence Thomas, Scalia, Rehnquist, and I assume White, because he wrote a dissent in Roe versus Wade, but I'm not sure about the fourth. Well, it may have been O'Connor. I'm not oh, it sure. It could have been but, O'Connor, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Casey uh, decision talked about upholding the um, essential holding. That was the language they used of Roe, but then they changed it significantly. The essential holding being a right to an abortion. That's correct. Right. Uh, uh, was there any suggestion as to if uh, what the standard should be if it's not viability and it's not a trimester uh, approach? Well, that question was asked explicitly, and no one had an answer to it. Uh, the parties weren't looking for any type of compromise approach. Now, you know, one other point that was made by the respondents who were trying to strike down the Mississippi law and uphold Roe and Casey. And I know it was also in some of the amicus briefs by some um, female athletes. You know, the, the first attorney, she said that, you know, to for the court to, ask, to force women to give birth would propel women backwards. And then the solicitor general also made this argument that women uh, could not participate fully in the economic life of the nation without the right to abortion. And there was this tie that was made between having an abortion and being economically successful, which I just found shocking to hear. Yeah, and I, I think uh, it presupposes, or, or maybe that's not the right term, it discounts or overlooks the notion of giving birth and giving the child up for adoption such that it, the child would not hamper or hinder uh, the the woman's right to either continue with uh, an educational pursuit or in a career path or both, other than for the nine months of gestation. Yeah, and Justice Barrett even brought up the fact that one change that has been in place since Roe and since Casey is the number of safe haven laws which exist across the nation, which make it easier to place a child for adoption. Uh, and those are the laws that that's essentially allow a mother who gives birth outside of a hospital setting to take the child to um, a fire station, a police department, and probably other places too, and, and leave the child and say, 
you know, the child was born today, yesterday, whatever, uh, and and leave the child with authorities there and leave without risk of being charged with abandoning the child. So we probably won't have any decision in this uh, Dobbs case until much further in the term, possibly the end of the term. I got the clear feeling that there were more people who were hostile to Roe and Casey and were supporting it on the bench. Interesting. But I also got the feeling that some of them are looking for another way of, of enunciating what the court has done before, but they don't see it now. Tell me what you mean. Well, your question a moment ago was whether there was any discussion about an alternative to the, to the viability line, right. as they refer to it. I got a sense that several of the justices, they were wrestling with that question. Is there some other way, not trimesters, not viability? Is there some other way that we maintain some sense of, uh, you know, a woman's right to abortion while, ex- while you know, expanding the right of the state to, to regulate at an earlier stage than that? Um, so I don't know where that goes. Yeah. You know. Um, and, of course, one way to, that, that seems to me that one way to do it, I guess there are three ways to do it, if, if you wanted to completely abandon that sort of a standard. You could either say abortion is wrong except in the following circumstances, whatever they may be, none or three or whatever. Or you could say, and, and, and say under the United States Constitution so that it would become a law of the land. Or you could say that abortion is always right under the United States Constitution except for whatever exceptions you want to make. Um, or uh, the court could do what uh, uh, return to, I guess, what the old lawyers would call the status quo ante, which is the federal constitution does not touch upon abortion. Return to neutrality. I yeah, and, 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 and go back to leaving it up to the individual states because, you know, there, as we talked when we did the, the preview show uh, a couple of months ago or six weeks ago, th- there is – a strong argument, it seems to me, that uh, the citizens of State A may answer that question differently than the citizens of State B. And if they spoke through their state legislatures, which is typically um, the way we think of citizens speaking uh, politically, you would have two different approaches from those two different states, which would be allowed under the I guess the neutrality uh, notions that that you that you discussed. Yeah, several people talked about that today. Several of the justices, and it would not surprise me at all if the court doesn't issue a six to three decision or a five to four decision that completely reverses Roe and Casey, and they say that these this right, whether it comes from uh, penumbras or wherever else it might have been found in the past, simply does not exist in the Constitution. And I, I think from looking at your notes, uh, which were awfully good, I must say, um, well, they were like five pages of notes. Uh, yeah, they really were. But uh, Justice Thomas actually uh, queried counsel, uh, you know, for where exactly does this right come? What do we call it? And where does it come from, um, textually or, or otherwise? Sometimes when commentators and the public start talking about abortion and, and, and whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, that is lost in the shuffle. 
you know, it's they had to do some gymnastics. The court did to to find the rights to privacy and pregnancy prevention, contraception, and, and ultimately abortion uh, within the penumbra uh, of the Constitution. And, you know, and a lot of the scholars, quite frankly, they don't they don't know or really even care what the Constitution says. Right. Uh, if, it's, if it's something they want, well, it's got to be in the Constitution. Right. We'll work backwards and figure out a, some sort of uh, basis for our decision, whether it passes the smell test and straight face tests or not. Yeah, but let me ask you a different question about this. And don't forget that we still have that Texas decision out there, which mm-hmm. deals with the six-week law uh, and allows private causes of action to prohibit abortion. Um, but, you know, here's a question. President Trump got three justices on the Supreme Court. And before that, I think conservatives have always felt like we were one vote away. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it was, you know, this case or some other case that we didn't agree with, it always seemed like we needed that one more justice. And, you know, maybe we'd get a Republican who'd appointed justice and then they'd go squishy on us. So now you've got three new justices. Suppose this court does not reverse Casey, does not reverse Roe. Suppose they create some new framework or suppose they just, you know, punt in some other way. Mm-hmm. Where does that leave conservatives approach towards the Supreme Court and what it actually takes to accomplish something? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And I, I think that is almost likely to happen. Um, I think Kavanaugh and Barrett, based upon what they didn't do in the election litigation, people fear that they are concerned about, I guess if you're cynical, they're concerned about being impeached. If you're not cynical, they would be concerned about maintaining um, some independence that they expressed at their uh, confirmation hearings about, you know, no preset agenda to overturn Roe v. Wade, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think that's that's the question. I, my impression, my prediction, if you will, is that Gorsuch is is in favor of overturning Roe and Casey. Um, I think clearly Thomas is, and I think Alito is. So the question is, where would the other two votes come from? I don't think they come from Roberts. I don't think they come possibly from Kavanaugh and Barrett. And so what, in my opinion, would happen in that in that event? One, it gives. Probably Trump, but whomever uh, ultimately is the Republican nominee in 24, something to run on. I think it helps potentially in 2022, as you said, you know, we're likely to get a decision, I would expect, at the end of the term. I don't think, I don't see them issuing a, a decision in February or March. Which at the end of the term is typically in June. Right. Late June, early, uh, late June typically, which is, Sort of right before the 2022 fall congressional elections would ramp up. I think that would be a, a one fallout. The the other perhaps would be more maybe more practical, uh, and that is I think it would be the almost the death knell of the Federalist Society because the Federalist Society is a group of lawyers and judges and law students who um, support, if you will. They tend to support conservative 
uh, beliefs with regard to the judicial system, but but they style themselves as a uh, a constitutionally based organization. Um, and, and President Trump, for all intents and purposes, allowed them to pick judges, certainly justices of the Supreme Court. And if these three or, or a majority, you know, if 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 he only gets one of those votes, uh, I think that's it for the for the Federalist Society. Um, other than perhaps as some sort of think, almost a well, it's not think tank, but a, you know, they they publish a a, a law journal and 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 um, it, it might continue to exist in that faction, but its political punch, if you will, would would be over, in my opinion. And I, and I think, I guess, I personally think that may not be a bad thing. Um, and and um, I, I think you you probably see in, in a Republican administration uh, nominees who are more uh, less grounded in the establishment with regard to their education, their background. Um, and and more of a what the liberal news media might call a firebrand conservative bent rather than, you know, uh, Harvard or Yale and service as a justice's clerk and then big firm, white shoe, appellate practice, and then maybe service on the appellate bench at either the state or federal level prior to the Supreme Court, that kind of thing. I think you'd, you'd be more apt to get a uh, a nominee who is perhaps a little more vocal, uh, a little more outspoken, and perhaps comes from um, more humble, and I say that using air quotes, uh, background. You know, not not necessarily Harvard or Yale, and and perhaps not uh, big time uh, white stocking law firm. Yeah. Of course, somebody still have to be able to get in through the Senate. Well, that's right. Confirmation, but but, it, but if 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 there is a red wave, you know, you'd think that that would mean much the same probably mm -hmm. for the Senate and therefore more likely that these folks would be confirmed. And, you know, give the devil his due, uh, Mitch McConnell, who has not, in my opinion, always uh, done uh, what uh, he should with regard to legislation and his approach to uh, uh, the Senate did absolute yeoman's work in getting conservative Trump appointed justices and judges uh, through the, the confirmation process. Oh, I totally agree. In fact, I would go just, just maybe one step further, maybe one step too far, but I would say that if it weren't for McConnell making sure Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing in 2016, that the under Supreme the so-called Biden rule, exactly that this, yeah, that if he didn't do that, the Supreme Court seat doesn't become nationalized, and Trump has a little bit harder path to win the White House. Absolutely. So I give him credit for that. Yes, and 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 that credit it should not be forgotten. I mean, it is it is it's become critical. You know. We'll, we'll, see what happens on this and see what happens in the Texas case still to come and see what the Supreme Court does. Yeah, it'll be fun for those of us uh, who find such entertaining and interesting and fun 
Well, I have a feeling it's going to be a wild time either way that the Supreme Court's rules. Yeah, so. you saw the comment by Jean Shaheen? No, no. What was the comment? Uh, senator from, is she from Vermont? I think she's from yeah, Vermont. Somewhere up there, yeah. Um, she, she for, for lack of a better word, threatened the Supreme Court by saying, if you want to see a revolution in this country, overturn Roe versus Wade. Um. Was that before the oral arguments today? I, I, I believe it was. Yeah, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, it might have been if it was after. It was just after. Uh, but uh, you know, and it, and then I guess that begs the question uh, in my mind: if there was a return to uh, what what you what we've talked about as being neutrality, in other words, leave it up to the to the individual states. Would people of her ilk consider that to be overturning Roe versus Wade? And I think probably so. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you would expect them to try to make political hay with that, um, which is their right. But, you know, the notion of that starting a revolution is, I mean, on the lips of a sitting United States senator. Now, see, if a Republican had said something like that, you know, they'd be having a a bipartisan congressional investigation of them. That's right. Liz Cheney would be running her her mouth. and Yeah. Um, Eric Swalwell and the, the whole bunch. All right. Anything else you got on Dobbs? No, huh? Uh, you know, I just wanted to hit one follow-up. Last week we talked about this Leandro litigation in North Carolina, which is a uh, multi-decade-long lawsuit over school funding and and just recently a special superior court judge had ordered a release of funds from the state's you know general fund of 1.7 billion dollars three judge panel in North Carolina Court of Appeals just struck that order down two justices or two judges rather imposed a temporary ban the other one said that he would have gone with a or excuse me a permanent ban two judges ordered the permanent ban on that, saying it violated the separation of powers clause. Uh, the other judge said he would have agreed to a temporary restraining order for further hearings. So just thought that was interesting to hear that that decision so quickly after the the judge had made his order. Right. Uh, I, I, I think so, too. I, as you know from our discussion uh, on the Leandro case, I, I think it was the right decision. I, I, I do think there is some merit to the argument of, it should have been a temporary ban until both sides had the opportunity to completely and fully brief and argue the matter before the court. We, we talked some, some months ago about the idea of a shadow docket in, a, in an appellate court being used to um, affect policy decisions sort of quickly and under the radar um, in, in, in certain instances. And I, I think that's an argument that can be made in favor of the temporary uh, and rather than the permanent man, um, I uh, because it's two to one. There's an automatic right uh, of appeal to the to the North Carolina Supreme Court. So I'm sure that uh, uh, those folks will will jump into this with um, all sorts of uh, speed and alacrity, uh, perhaps glee. Uh, yeah, well, I think, uh, and I have not heard this anywhere, but I would suspect that before they go to the Supreme Court, they may file a petition for rehearing on Bonk. Yeah, with all of the justices from the Court of Appeals. There would be certain uh, 
benefits to doing that. The thing that jumped out at me, Ed, and, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this because we touched on it when we discussed the Leandro case, and that is, you know, for the first time in what four or five years, uh, we actually have a budget in this state. Governor Cooper signed the budget. I don't know if it was last week or a week before. Um, and that budget did not incorporate all of Judge David Lee's uh, required funding of the public schools uh, under the Leandro, his, his decision in the Leandro case. And, and, and Governor Cooper knew that and, and signed it anyway. And the president pro tem of the state Senate was quoted as saying, well, we put in there the portions that of, of his order that we wanted to fund, but we didn't really, and these are my words, not his, we didn't really care what he said beyond that because uh, he doesn't have the right to, to appropriate dollars and, and direct how they're spent. And I, and I think it, that, that he's correct in saying that, but I wonder, you know, what the Cooper administration's position on this is going to be. Not not so much in a theoretical sense, because I, I think I know that we know the answer to that, but, but more so in just the practical, you know, for the first time in many years, we have a budget. The governor signed it. He may have held his nose and signed it or not. I, he, he hasn't really said, but, you know, it's it certainly was a compromised budget in a lot of ways. And whether or not, you know, they would want, particularly with an election year coming up, to sort of rock that boat. I don't well, I think know that. Does. I don't know that it that that decision um, today, uh, uh, much less the decision of the trial judge. I don't know if that resonates with the voters. Um, yeah, but uh, I, I just wonder about the practical effect of that that budget well, being signed. When the governor signed the budget, he made a comment to the effect of, "It still has problems, but I'm going to fix those problems." Okay. And I don't trust him at all. I think that his plan all along has been to use this educational consultant that he hired and spent taxpayer dollars on to get the report, which Judge Lee then used as a basis to order the state to pay $1.7 billion. I think the governor is going to continue to push for what he could not get through the legislature from the court system. Good point. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I don't. I, <laughs> I bet you're not. I, I suspect that uh, he's going after every dollar he can get. Yeah. So those are kind of the big legal cases this week. Um, what's on your radar for the next week? I think maybe Ghislaine Maxwell and that whole situation. I, I, I you know, I keep reading, and there there seem to be two sort of schools of thought, and, and one is that. And this might be even a crackpot theory, but one is that this is mere window dressing and it's part of the cover up that James Comey's daughter is one of the prosecutors. She was directly involved with losing the video of uh, Jeffrey Epstein's jail cell at the time of his supposed suicide um, and that uh, based on some rulings with regard to what the prosecution or the government was going to be allowed to say regarding Prince Andrew, among others, um, that, that this is all a sham. Um, and then there's that is a, our conspiracy theory of the week. Right, right. And, and then there's another school of thought that is this is uh, not a sham and it is uh, she was sort of number two in the Epstein crime Inc. 
with regard to trafficking uh, underage uh, young women. And uh, it is legitimate uh, to prosecute her in this fashion. And and um, Comey is, um, uh, you know, a qualified and experienced federal prosecutor and, and, and will do what she needs to do. I, I saw earlier today remarks on social media that the federal government did not did not attempt to make a deal with Maxwell uh, and and seek you know a plea bargain in exchange for her naming names um, and and that's uh, yeah I assume that's true I don't know that to be true but that's interesting um, and then there I did see a story I didn't have a chance to read it yet but the FAA released inadvertently flight records for some I think it's 2,000, I don't know if it's pages or 2,000 records related to Jeffrey Epstein and who was on those flights. I think that's a fascinating case. I don't believe necessarily the conspiracy theories, but I do find them interesting. Um, and it'll be fun to watch how this plays out and, and see what what uh, what comes of it. Um, perhaps we shouldn't, I shouldn't say it's fun, there, there are victims here and, and who have suffered and, and, and need justice. Um, but just from the nuts and bolts and the political fallout or potential fallout, it, it, it has the chance to be quite informative uh, and entertaining as well. Well, it's interesting because, you know, and when you boil it down, it's a pretty straightforward trial that, you know, we can find in a lot of County courthouses across yeah. the nation on a regular basis. You know, abuse right. cases happen all the time. Unfortunately, yeah. this one has just been taken into federal court because of, well, because of the history, because of the publicity, and because of the scope of it yeah. that was involved. I, I read earlier. I was snooping around before we came on the air, uh, the internet, and there was um, some commentary that. Maxwell really doesn't have a defense that what she has said or what her lawyer said in opening argument was uh, essentially this is a you know a time time uh, an old time tale that you know the man does it and the woman gets blamed for it uh, and that her courtroom tactics at this point really were uh, had quickly become let's blame the victims. Uh, and we're not blame the, but attack the victims, um, and and I don't I don't know that that would play well with the jury. There were problems this morning with the jury. Uh, perhaps it was yesterday morning where one forgot to show up, and uh, one uh, was a uh, had been given um, sort of as a surprise gift a, a, a trip to um, the Bahamas or somewhere by a spouse. And, and uh, so the judge let that juror go. So there's one less alternate juror now. But uh, I'll have my eye on that case for the coming days or so uh, and see how that plays out. What about you? There are two things, kind of. One has to do with the fact that um, the deal which was reached in the Senate about 40, 45 days ago, to extend government funding is about to go, about to be gone. The government uh, is about to run out of money. It expires so, this month, right? 
well, there are questions whether it expires Friday or whether it's sometime next week or whether the Treasury Department can do something creative and push it back a little bit further. No one knows exactly or they're not saying or there's so many people saying I don't know which one's right, but uh, it's happening soon. And it's interesting for me to see the fact that, you know, month and a half or so and basically nothing's happened until the last minute again. Yeah, um, surprise, surprise. It, you know, the Democrats could have pushed it through on a reconciliation bill. They had plenty of time. They refuse to do that. And then they want to blame Republicans because they're not agreeing to spend more money. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to that as we get right up on the deadline here. And, and at Christmas it. time. Yeah. You know, they don't work hard in most months. They sure don't work hard in the month of December. And, and starting in January, they're going to be all about campaigning. Well, and they also want to push this Built Back Better bill through the Senate, and I don't know where that is. They keep saying they're still negotiating. So, uh, so many things going on in Washington, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the short period of time. Now, the other thing, which is probably an even uh, shorter time frame, is that the current collective bargaining agreement in yes. baseball I was going expires to ask you about tonight. That. And the story is that the owners are going to lock out the players. Now, they're not playing right now, so I don't know what a lockout really means, but they still seem to be pretty far apart on a number of issues from what I've read. They, they stopped negotiating today after seven minutes. No, I didn't hear about that, now, so that didn't last long. I don't understand what the fight is about. They, the baseball players make enormous sums of money at the major league level once they, they get that second contract, typically. They're not striking to get money for minor leaguers or, or benefits for minor leaguers, as I understand it, or they don't, they're not threatening to strike in order to do that. Um, they're not uh, seeking within the collective, a new collective bargaining agreement revenue sharing among the teams, uh, which, which I think is a necessity. So I don't know what, they're fi- what, the, what the fight's about. There, it seems to me... Uh, there's plenty of money to go around. They need to recall the damage they did to the game in 94 that resulted in the powers that be within Major League Baseball turning a blind eye, a knowing blind eye, to steroids to foster the 98 home run chase in an effort to rebuild the fan base and generate more dollars. And, and and clearly they did. Um, you know, I, I think attendance is, I don't know about this past season, but until COVID at least was burgeoning, TV dollars were doing the same. Player contracts were increasing as a result. So do you know what the the beef is? I mean, I'm sure it's about money, but exactly the, the particulars? Several issues that I've heard mentioned. One has to do with the salary cap per team. One has to do with when arbitration is allowed. And then there are other issues about how long that first contract has to be and when people become unrestricted free agents. You know, my solution is um, we talked about backwards reasoning. Mm-hmm. What I would love to see in, in baseball and every sport, I guess, is, hey, let's figure out the average fan's income. And they should be able to come with their family of four for a reasonable price. Mm -hmm. That's your ticket prices. And that's all you're going to charge for tickets. Beyond that, the owners make their money from 
t-shirt sales or whatever it is. I think if you own a major league baseball team or any professional franchise, you know, you, you should give up some of your right to profit at that point because you've been given the special gift of a major sports franchise. It's it's almost a public trust. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the issues are, you know, all of those various personnel things, uh, which in one way or another all comes back to money. Yeah. I, I like your point about, you know, Joe and Mary American being able to take their family, their kids to a ball game, buy tickets, park, you know, buy a souvenir or two, buy hot dogs and popcorn and beverages and not have to, you know, put it on a credit card and take two years to pay it off or, or you know, save for a couple of years in order to be able to afford the trip. It's it's quickly, but I think it may be headed in that direction. The NFL's already there. Um, it, it's, you know, I mean, what are you looking at? A hundred bucks a ticket, something close to it for an NFL game. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, with this MLB situation, if there's a lockout tonight and, you know, we're recording on Wednesday, and they say they're going to lock out Wednesday night. I don't see that there's any motivation that's going to move them toward a new collective bargaining agreement anytime soon. No, I, I, and and my question would be, are teams, because I know there has been a, an effort in the past few days, according to the news media, to sign free agents before any lockout. If there is a lockout instituted, would teams be free to sign players? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I would, I would think so. I just think they can't f- perform. In other words, they they would not be able to to go to the facilities owned by the team for uh, taking advantage of you know practice or. And I'm not sure how much of that gets done at this point in the calendar. Anyway, earlier in the fall, yes, they do, um, and perhaps later in the in the winter. But right now. How many players are, you know, in a cold weather city taking advantage of a, a batting cage under the stadium, you know, uh, or yeah. for that matter, even in the in the warmer climes, um, they typically are, you know, playing golf and chasing the little, well, chasing the little white ball and, and eating rubber chicken on the on the speaking circuit as they go to these hot stove banquets. I, I just, uh, I don't know what what impetus there would be to resolve it right now. But spring training comes pretty quick. Yeah, you know? you're you're almost after the holidays. You're about seventy five days or so from spring training. Um, well, that is a, as of now about seventy five right. days. But you know, when you get through December, you get through Christmas, New Year's, and then you're into January. You're thirty five, forty days away from yeah. spring training. Yeah, and um, you know, at that point, your average fan starts to become more invested in: is there going to be baseball mm-hmm. and people starting to buy tickets at that point right is it going to start on time and uh then there might be more of a of an incentive for both to settle but uh, right now I, I agree with you i don't see it so that that's kind of what i'm watching to see what happens tonight and over the next week well thanks for tuning in for another episode of the let's think about that podcast you can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. 